Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. He is risen. Think about the power of those two statements made in history. As, as, the, as for whatever reason, God has chosen earth to be the stage on which something cosmic takes place. That God is, is doing something to display his glory, his power, his sufficiency, his, his holiness, that he is the only one that can take broken things and make them whole again. He is the only one that can take things that are, that are evil and wicked and bend them towards his good purposes. I was just, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this on Wednesday as an example, but I was just talking with a, a friend of mine that, that we've done ministry with in Ukraine who is now in Germany. And now without minimizing the horrors that are going on in Ukraine, and there are horrors that we need to continually be praying over. But yet, even in the midst of that, among the millions of refugees, God's mission is advancing. So my friend, who's planted a church in Kiev years ago, is now in Germany planting a church among refugees and seeing refugees now come to Christ through these things. God can take what is broken and evil and wicked. God can take the evil intentions of man and still bend it to not not in a way that minimizes or trivializes the evil, but can actually take our greatest shames and turn them for his glory. That's a picture of the cross. The cross is arguably horrible and dark and wicked. The death of God the Son on the cross was so monumental, it caused the earth to quake and the skies to grow dark. And yet through that, redemption is advanced. His people are bought. And then you bookend that with, and that is all sealed by the fact that why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And in him, we are given new life. I think of Romans chapter 6, that we are redeemed to walk in newness of life. And that is what we hope that we can continue to grow in together and to proclaim to the world around us. That new life, new hope that will never disappoint us is being offered to us in Jesus. And this is not just a little moral story that we build our lives on or a mere thing that we want to go to once a week to get a little shot in the arm so that we feel good for the rest of the week. No, this is about a resurrected God who has brought us to himself and has given us a new heart, that he is working out that new heart in each one of his people in day-by-day moments as we get to do that together. And that's what we've been talking about over the last five weeks in particular, as we look at these discipleship outcomes that that we have been wanting to highlight. 
that are built on these core values of God, truth, love, and mission, that in the gospel we are made to be new people. And in that newness, we are people that value God above all else. We stand on his truth as our worldview shaper, that we are so compelled by his love that we seek to give that love to others, which leading us to a life of mission. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we are on mission with God because we're his ambassadors through which he makes his appeal to us. And when we begin to be those people that, that, that continually wrap our lives around those values, that's evidenced in five outcomes, activities of discipleship. So when, if, if anyone's ever asked, what is a disciple of Jesus? This is the answer that, 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 that we believe rises from the text. And these are the words that we've put to it. There may be other churches that word it differently, but the, the concepts and the definition is still the same. The number one, we are people who are embodying the, the values. God, truth, love, and mission with our lives and families. That secondarily, we are growing and living out these five outcomes of discipleship. That we are people who, number one, we are communing with God daily. Because he's our highest value, he's the first relationship that we pursue. Does that make sense? That we take time daily to spend with him in his word, prayer, silence, solitude, meditation, being with his people. That we seek to live by his spirit. That we obey him that we seek to have our relationships demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, that, that, that what marks the way we relate to one another is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I've missed a couple. <laughs> but does that make sense? Like there's a quality that's distinct from everything around us because we are, we are transformed by God we are communing with him and we seek to be led by him that gives the way we interact with one another difference. We're not vindictive in how we treat each other. That we lay our lives down for each other instead of seek to always be protectionists. That number three, that we share God's grace, that, that we want to extend the good news to, to each other in the church and to those outside the church. That we know that we come to the body of Christ in the world not to ask what you can do for me. I'm going to, I'm going to be very John F. Kennedy right now. That we don't come to church going, what will this church do for me? But instead, we come and go empowered by the Spirit. What can I do to serve the body? Does that make sense? And then finally today, we're going to talk about this one, stewarding life generously and what that means. But before we get there, remember this. I'm going to try to move around so you can write those notes down, those of you who are note takers. But notice first and foremost, these are all ongoing activities. 
That's why they're communing, living, sharing, serving, stewarding. It's not like we do it once and then go, huh, got that. Like I, like I mowed my lawn this week, done. Don't have to think about that another week other than just sit back and marvel at it. One of my favorite times of the week, by the way. When I sit and I look, I've never had two acres before. So I just sit on my deck and I'm like, yes. I did. Honey, look. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> you know, that's not how discipleship goes. This is ongoing activity. Number two, remember the gospel leads to these works. These works don't lead to the gospel. We want to always make sure that we never invert this. This is not a list so that you can do these and then at the end of your life go, see God, look what I did. Do you accept me? That's not how it works. It is, it is instead going, God, you have accepted me. You have, it is finished. You have brought me to yourself. You've given me a new life. You have given me a new heart. And I have fumbled and I have fallen and I have stepped aside and I have turned aside. But at the end of the day, God, I'm doing these as an act of worship for you. Walking in newness of life and growing up into our salvation. We do that by embodying these things. And fundamentally, this is how success is measured here. We want to measure success ultimately by how we as a body are growing in these five values or outcomes of discipleship. Everything we do in our spiritual formation is to help us grow in these. So when we talk about empowering all of Christ's people to worship God with all of their lives, here's what I don't want you to automatically think. Well, what program in the church can I serve in now? Now, we're going to have programs that we want you to serve in. <laughs> But you can serve in a church program and be super faithful to it and not live out any single one of these. At the end of the day, this is about empowering every person that belongs to Jesus to do this in everyday life. Where they live, where they work, where they play. In their families, with their children, when they go on vacation, when they're in marital struggles, when they're walking the hallways of their schools, that we are people living these out together. And number two, as we do that, are we actually reaching lost people with the gospel? These are the two fundamental markers of how we want to measure success here. It's not about how many fill this room. It's about something so much deeper than that. But remember, in this journey... The path is the same for us all, but the journey we all undertake in that is not the same. See the, see, the goal is that we are transformed into the image of Christ and that we are not conforming to behavior with one another. We, but we seek to help one another in our pursuit of Jesus together. I don't want you to look like me. And I don't want you to feel that my job is to look at your life and be like, I need to be just like Karen. Or that Karen needs to be just like Cindy. Or that Cindy needs to be just like Rick. And all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, we create this 
inward culture that puts this domineering like, like legalism on us, that if you're not wearing the right clothes and, and talking the right way, and if you don't have the right Bible, which by the way, the ESV journaling Bible is phenomenal, by the way. <laughs> and I did just get the large print. So I've still read that. That's a, I'm still working that out emotionally. But, but this is about us conforming to Christ. We are not looking to develop clones for we are all in different places, and we will all live these outcomes differently and in various ways. And that is beautiful, and that is wonderful. I want to read to you. It's kind of a long quote, so bear with me. But there's a, a theologian named A.W. Pink. Great name. A.W. Pink. And in his book on spiritual growth, he writes this. If it be born in mind... That spiritual growth is a relative thing. We shall see that the same unit of measurement is not applicable to all cases. If we take into consideration, as we should, the differences of privilege and opportunity, of teaching and training, of our station in life and our circumstances, Uniform progress should not be expected. Some believers have much more to contend against than others. It is not that we would limit the grace of God, but that we should recognize and take into account the distinction which Scripture itself draws. He goes on, the relative growth of one who is severely handicapped may be much greater in reality than that of another who in a more favorable, favorable circumstance makes greater progress. Here's what I hope you see in that. There are some of us that are coming here this morning with significant life hindrances. Some of us did not grow up in a Christian home with Christian values, even knowing what it means to follow Jesus. And the thought of reading your Bible five minutes a day is a huge step for you. Now, if you're like my children, who have grown up in a Christian home, being church planters since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, they should be able to preach this sermon today. Just kidding, I'm not laying that on you. But I'm just saying, like, like we all come differently. Some of us come with massive trauma that we try to overcome. Some of us come to Christ so later in life that there is a pattern of behavior in life that is really difficult to overcome. So the goal is not that we all look the same and act the same, but that we are all pursuing the same outcomes in desiring to be conformed to the image of Christ. See, we are all on the same journey, but not all in the same way. Does that make sense? And the goal is that we help one another take baby steps of growth in that journey. If someone comes to me and says, I have never been in a regular pattern of scripture before, but you know what? I've started to read it 10 minutes a day, two days a week. That's a win. That's a win that needs to be celebrated. And so the goal is, that's a 200% increase of reading scripture. <laughs> I don't want that person to feel compelled 
to, sh to compare themselves next to, say, say, someone else that has been reading the Scripture seven days a week for an hour for 20 years. But the goal is, can we celebrate where we all are and grow to greater faithfulness together? Does that make sense? So let's look to then, with all of this in mind, at our final discipleship outcome of stewarding life generously. And we're going to do, again, Darren and I, we're just doing flyovers of these things today because the rest of our time together in life is we're going to unpack this more and more and more. So to do that, I want to read Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. And I'm not really going to like dive deep into this passage, but I want to go into the heart of this passage for steward stewarding life generously. This is the word of God. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, here, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then, I, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which you own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is a peculiar parable, isn't it? Now, one of the things to keep in mind is in ancient cultures, shrewdness was looked at as a virtue. So, so it's not necessarily saying that this manager did a good thing necessarily, but he was shrewd in his dealings in a way that he knew. So this manager was hired by a very wealthy, powerful man in Jesus' parable. And his job was to steward the things that belonged to the owner in a way that was good for the owner. 
He, did, he wasn't stewarding things that belonged to himself, but to someone else, and he wasn't doing it properly. And the, guy, and the owner was holding the manager accountable. You're not doing this wise. You're fired. So now this man is going, wait a minute. I'm not strong enough to dig. It's like when I tell people, I have pastor hands. <laughs> right? I'm willing to do the work, but you're going to have to help me and be patient with me when I'm tired after digging for four minutes. <laughs> right? And he's like, and I'm not going to beg. So he's like, here's what I'm going to do. And this was not an uncommon practice. I have all these bills of debt. I'm going to go to these accounts, and I'm going to reduce their debt in a way that does a couple things. Number one, it makes my master look benevolent. Number two, it's going to ingratiate me when I'm fired to all of these other people so that now when I'm without a job, these people will maybe be kind to me and help me work for them because I did them a favor. Does that make sense? And here's what Jesus says to the disciples. He's like, listen, those that don't know the Lord, they're really shrewd with how they deal with their possessions. We, they don't handle money. They don't work this way. They work with a purpose in mind. What's best for me? And they think about this with shrewdness, and they think about this in ways that will advance their... And he's like, just as people like that are very intentional with how they use their possessions, how much more should you be responsible with the things the Lord has given you? And if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful and entrusted with more. And at the end of the day, he brings it all home, and this is what I want to focus on, where Jesus says, don't be deceived. You cannot serve two masters. You will either serve mammon, which is things, or you will serve God, you cannot serve both. And this is the heart of what stewarding life generously is. So I want to ask three questions in light of this. Number one, what is stewardship? Number two, my whole life, really? And number three, what is generosity and why is it so important? See, what is stewardship? See, stewardship is first and foremost realizing that all we have in life does not belong to us, but to the Lord. Therefore, you and I are managers and stewards, not owners. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says as just an example. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, the earth with all that is in it. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This means that no matter what you have, my clothes, my house, my cars, my money, my relationships, my, my guitars, my every, there is not a single thing that I have that is not first and foremost what belongs to God. My own life belongs to him. And we understand that we are accountable to the Lord for what we do with all that he has put into our hands. Therefore, we take our new life in Christ and live in such a way that we strive 
to intentionally and fully cooperate with God in the expansion of his kingdom with all that we have and all that we do. Think about that. Just take through that first point. We will never get to, to stewarding life generously until we first realize we are stewards. And fundamentally, I don't own anything, including my own life. If you're a follower of Jesus, think of what 1 Corinthians says in chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So everything we have belongs to God. So now the second question is, okay, stewarding, I'm a, I'm a steward, not an owner. Everything I have belongs to him. Okay, life. But here's the question that if I'm in your seat, maybe you're asking. But my whole life? My whole life. Like really, my, my whole life. And the answer to this, simply biblically speaking, is yes. Your entire life life, and all that it contains. We are to steward for a purpose. Because all of life is designed to be lived for his glory. It was all created by him and for him. The gospel message is one of redeeming all of our lives back to God for God, reconnecting us to why we were created in the first place. Which means that empowered by the Spirit, when we live our lives serving God alone, here's where the interesting thing is. That is actually where true, lasting joy, meaning, and life are actually found. Think of what Jesus says. I don't think Jesus was just creating moral platitudes when he said this. If you want to find your life, lose it for my sake. That's describing how life was supposed to be lived. And when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive, that's how life was meant to be lived. To relegate God to a piece of our lives is a dangerous game that strives to put God in a subservient position to us. And it denies who he has revealed himself to be as the maker, sustainer, and God of all things. So fundamentally, stewardship begins with a right view of God and his gospel, which then begins to seep into every facet of our lives. And God is patient with us as this happens. As we begin to step into this, it's not like all of a sudden we go from zero to 100. It's baby steps, as, like water seeping into cement. It just little by little begins to creep into every nook and cranny of our lives, bringing life to us, true life to us. I love what Randy Alcorn says in his book, Managing God's Money, where he says this, stewardship includes the divinely delegated management of our physical, our mental, and spiritual lives and the exercise even of our God-given gifts and skills. We are stewards of our families, our workplaces, our communities, our churches, and our nation. God has entrusted all of this to us. We are stewards of all we possess. 
Your marriage doesn't belong to you. Your children don't belong to you. Your job doesn't belong to you. Your, it's all his. It is important that as we look at our stuff, that we keep a broader view of eternity in mind and live and view what we have in light of that eternity. All of life really is just practice for eternity. We are accountable to the owner for what we have and what we do with what he's placed in our hands. Therefore, the stewarding of our lives should be done with eternity in mind and not just the here and the now. We are to steward all we have in such a way that it shows that we serve only one God and desire to see his kingdom expanded as our chief joy. So in light of this, we've got to hear Christ's words in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Your Bible may say money, but the real word is mammon, and it's things. As God's people, then, we strive to steward our whole lives for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom generously. So what is generosity? And why is it so important? First, generosity is a state of the heart and the mind that first sees how generous God has been to us. Therefore, generosity is first and foremost rooted in God himself. Think of how generous he is to us. God is the eternal giver. He has given us life. He has given us breath. He has given us the taste of strawberries. He has given us the beauty of flowers. He has given us the beauty of a, of a sky that wows us at night. He is a continual giver, and it is ultimately seen in this. It is most beautifully seen in this. He gave his only son. What wondrous generosity and love is that, that God gave his son. It is wonderfully and extravagantly shown in his people. Think, for those of us that have been walking through Ephesians chapter, the, the book of Ephesians, read through chapter 1 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and, and blameless. In love, he predestined us as sons through adoption so that through him we might have the forgiveness of sins. He has lavished his grace on us to know the purpose of all life where he is lifting the, high name, the name of Jesus above every name. God just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. 
So much so to the point where the only son of the father goes on a cross after being beaten, mocked, and crucified. And the horrors of sin and depravity were falling on him. And all the darkness of the mental torture that comes from that. And he joyfully, or he says in his anguish, it is finished. Oh, your God is generous. Generosity, then, is also evidence of a new life made in God's image. We were created in keeping with that generosity to give our lives away for the good of others, for the glory of God. And generosity is a chosen way of life, not coerced. What does the scripture say? God loves a cheerful giver. And generosity ultimately glorifies God. And finally, generosity, we can't really be generous without sacrifice. Like if we're truly going to be people that steward all of our lives with generosity, it means that I don't just give the pittance of my excess. It means that I will give out of what I have to make sure that you have no lack. It's one of the things that distinguished the early church and still does to this day in third world countries where, where they look in at the church and they go, man, not a person among them has lack. May we be a community that is so generous with one another that there's not a person in here that has lack. If there's someone in here that's lacking something and the body turns a blind eye to it, we have failed as a church. If we look at the lost communities around us that have no representation of the church and we're okay with that and aren't generous to try to seek how we put new congregations and small groups in those places, we have failed as a church. See, stewarding life generously is living a life that seeks to intentionally leverage all we are, all we have, all our time, all our talents in a generous way for the glory of God and the good of others in light of the gospel. This is why our vision statement says that we exist to equip all of his people to worship him with their whole lives. So may the posture of this congregation be that we serve only one master, God. May the posture of your life and family be that you serve only one God, and that's Yahweh. That we take our time, our talent, our resources, our relationships, and our possessions, and we live with them with an open hand that says, God, everything I have is yours. You've given me what I need to live. Use the rest for whatever you desire. So in light of that, I have four questions for us. Number one, if you are here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, disregard everything else I've said except the generosity that God has shown in giving his only son so that you could find eternal life. Will you receive the generosity of God? And call upon the name of the Lord Jesus so that he can restore you back to himself. Not so that you can feel the burden that you've got to earn something. 
but that you can rest in the fact that Christ earned it for you. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be redeemed other than Jesus Christ. But in him is the fullness of redemption. If you are a follower of Jesus, think through three questions. Number one, how can you enjoy what God has entrusted to you for his glory? There is an element of that. He's given you things to enjoy. And it's okay to enjoy them. To sit on my back deck. I've never had a deck before. On two acres. And I sat there last summer like, I just can't believe I've got this. Like I'd walk in and I'd go, Tara, look at that. Like this is amazing. Like I'm so thankful. Right? And it's okay to enjoy your children and enjoy your marriage and enjoy that glass of iced tea. And it's great, you know. So how can you enjoy it? But turn that praise back to the Lord. Number two, how can you share what God has entrusted to you? In ways that, man, I want to share my deck. (laughs) Share our homes. Share our possessions. And thirdly, how can you give away what God has entrusted to you? For the good of someone else and the expansion of his kingdom. How can you enjoy what he's given you? How can you share what he's given you? How can you give away what he's given you? Trusting that he's going to provide everything you need anyway. Can you imagine what God would do through us as we continue to grow in this with baby steps day in and day out? Let's find out. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son and God. We are so thankful for what a generous God that you are and that you have called us to something so much more than just attending church, but to be participators in new life in Christ. That is one that is, yes, fueled with us giving our lives away for your glory and the good of others. But God, we know that you don't give that promise in a vacuum or to our detriment, but ultimately for our good and the good of the world around us. God, may things not own us but may you own us that we can take all that we have and enjoy it for your glory share it for your glory and give it away for your glory and build your kingdom and build our own lives and families in the midst of it in Jesus name we pray Amen.